Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, before basketball season began this year, we have a junior higher in basketball, we have a high schooler in basketball. They both are gals, so this, was, this is gals basketball. And before the season began, there was a parent meeting. It took place in the library over at the Caney High School. And um, it was an interesting meeting, a lot of different things shared. And one thing that was mentioned in particular by, by one coach in particular was this. Okay, when you come to games... Please allow me to coach your, your athlete, your daughter. Allow me to do that. Um, I'm their coach, so you can coach them at home. But there, let me coach them. And, and, and then she said, she said, and let me yell at the refs. Please, let, let me, that, that's, that's part of what I'm supposed to do. I can handle it. Um, let me take care of that. And let me tell you something. None of those parents took her advice. In any way... Whatsoever, and, and when I talk about this today, I hope that I'm not talking about any of you. I hope I'm not, because you've probably been there before. And, and you know, you just get to a certain point, and you think that, that that ref, male or female, whoever it might be, it can be a basketball court, it can be a ball field, it can be wherever, but occasionally they just need your help. I mean, do, do they not? They, they do. They need your, they want your help at times. And they want you to help them in an aggressive manner, in an aggressive way. And men, I am not just speaking to you. Ladies, I don't know if you know this. In a basketball gym, because that's what's in my mind right now, in a basketball gym, a woman's voice carries better than a man's voice, okay? Especially when she is agitated, Okay? And when you have this guy or gal out there running on the court and they hear this and they hear it again and they hear it again and they hear it again, they have a breaking point. They are human. They can't see sometimes really well, but they are human. They are. And I'm telling you, if any of you have ever ball ballgames, my hat's off to you. You are Wow. I mean, I don't know why you do it. I don't know how you do it. I don't know what motivates you to do it. I'm glad somebody does it because I never, ever would. But I can tell you this. When they reach like a certain level and it's like, and it never ends well for the parent in the stands. It never, ever, ever does. So take this piece of advice, mom and dad. If, if you think you got to say one more thing, you don't have to say one more thing. Just keep it close because something's going to show up and something could really, really ruin your night. Okay. We are jumping at the end of an incredible account. And in this account, we have several people speaking up. We have Job speaking up. He is kind of the main character. We have three of his friends speaking up. We have one of his friends who's a young man who doesn't talk till close to the end. All right? And you see a lot of talking, a lot of this taking place in this account. But you work your whole way through this. Everyone by chapter 37 has said their piece except one. And beginning... 
in chapter 38, the one begins to speak. Now, I can tell you something, brothers and sisters. This passage of Scripture, it's a little tough to preach from. Not for a lack of information, but for a lack of adequate words to describe what is taking place. And I would much rather, for the remainder of our time, just read Job 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. I'd rather just read it. I'd rather just read it. But I don't know if, I mean, I'm actually paid not just to read, okay? So, so I'm going to ask this of you. Some point this week, if, if you have not read these chapters, read them. There is profound power. There is a humbling part of this passage of Scripture that even though we aren't Job, we might have stood in his shoes before, and this passage will put us in our place. The book begins with, with this question. It starts, it starts in a puzzling way, and that's why this, this, this book is somewhat difficult to understand for us, because it begins with God having a conversation with Satan. And God saying something, I'm paraphrasing some, but saying something along these lines. Have you ever noticed my servant Job? Man, he's a good dude. He's, he's, he, he's, he's solid. Not perfect. No, no one's perfect. He's walked in this world at that point in time. You know, Jesus hadn't entered the world yet. So, so he's not, but he is a good, good guy. And this is what, this is Satan's response. Well, is, does he serve you? Is he good for nothing? I mean, does he serve you for nothing? You haven't let me touch him. Of course he's good. Of course he serves you. You let me touch him. You let me touch his stuff and he will curse you, turn his back on you and he will, he will curse you to your face. It's, a, it's an interesting, interesting encounter and account. And what we will find, because God does allow Job to be touched, not just his stuff or his family, but he himself, and, and Job's faith will soar to heights never experienced when his life was good. There are people in this room who can attest to the fact that faith grows more abundantly during difficult times in wonderful times. And if we read through this, through these first 37 chapters, we will see and we will understand. See, Job, he suffered greatly. He did. But it seems that his attitude toward God at times is worthy of criticism. It does. And he repeatedly requested a meeting with God and answers from God. And guess what? Well, the point in the, in the encounter that we will read today and the point in the account is his request will be granted. God will show up. Here's the thing, though. Instead of answering Job's questions in this meetup, this meetup between Job and God, God will ask some questions of his own. Over 70 of them, rapid fire. Pow, 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 pow. It will not be God in the witness stand in this encounter. It will be Job. And, and God's meeting with Job had two purposes. Rebuke and healing. 
And Job needed a little bit of both of these. God had some challenges of his own for Job. And we're going to look at one of them first, hold off on the second one, and then we'll kind of come back to the first one again. The first one is this. Can man really contend with God? I mean man. I'm talking about mankind. Can people? Can man really contend with God? And the second question is this. Can man charge God with injustice? Can man really do this? Is it wise to do this? Again, turn to chapter 38 if you're not there already. We're going to read some verses here that, that are going to get us started and kind of set the stage here. And the stage that is going to be set is this. God's going to make it really clear in this encounter that Job really doesn't know what's going on. He might think he knows, but he's only seeing a small part of the bigger picture. And God begins with some strong words. And he will, he will make very clear that, that Job's boast is a hollow one. Because Job did boast. And one of his boasts came in chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 13. When he said, well, if God would just show up, he needs to answer my questions. God needs to show up and answer me. So let's see what happens when God shows up in the form of a whirlwind, by the way, because if God showed up in all his glory, Job wouldn't have survived it. So let's see what takes place here. Verse 1 of chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Now, I, I don't... I don't think probably we use language quite like that anymore. Moms, did any of, any of you ask, this would be a son question. Did you ask him before school, did you, did you gird up your loins? You ready for school? You know, I mean, it's kind of like pull your britches up. It's kind of like put your boots on, get ready. Here we go, all right? God says, get ready, Job. I will ask you some questions. You answer me. And as I told you, the first challenge that God is gonna lay out to Job is this one. Job, you as a man, can you contend with me? Can man contend with God? And where, where God is going to start, it's so, I mean, Jesus is God's son, right? Because when Jesus taught, what did he use? He used the things that people could see around them. Look at his parables. Look at his sermons. Jesus kind of a chip off the block. I mean, that's exactly what God, the Father, does here. And he tells Job, look around you. Look around you. Look at the wonders of this earth. And you will see in the next, oh, in the next 16, 17 verses that God is going to speak about creation. And the way in which he talks about it is interesting. He talks about it almost in the way in which a contractor or a builder would talk. Like, like he wasn't just building a, like, universes and galaxies and worlds, all right? He, he, was, he was just building a house. Just building a house. And he says it to Job. Hey, Job, got a question for you, buddy. Where were you when I laid the foundations of this world in which you live? Where were you, buddy? Were you there? And then he continues. He said, you know the, that, that, that sea that you see? You know those oceans beyond? He said, question for you, Job. Are you the one that told them where to stop? 
I mean, somebody must have done it. Somebody must have told the, okay, you stop here. You don't go past this point. This is where you remain. Was that you, Job? Was that you who did that? Oh, Job, got another question for you. When that sun came up this morning, did you tell it to do that? Did you tell, did you tell the dawn to come? Did you tell that sun to rise? Now, I will tell you, that'd be kind of nice to be able to do that sometimes, wouldn't it? How many of you have just held off just to, like a snooze button, you know? But God asks the question, and it's a legitimate question. Job, did you command this morning? Let me tell you something, guys. This account is an old one. As I, as I told you, it, it does not chronologically fit into the middle of our Bible. It's early. Now, there is some debate among Bible scholars as to how early it is. But all agree this is like a genesis thing this is like this is a long time ago okay and we've come a long ways i mean the advancement technologically speaking wow all right but there are some mysteries of that day that continue to be mysteries today and god spelled it out to job he said have you ever been speaking speaking of the sea have you have you ever seen the depths Guys, there, there are places that even with our technology yet today that have not been seen in the depths of the ocean floor. Job, do you know those mysteries? Do you, do you know what exists there? Do you, do, do you know? Because I, I put that there. And then he goes, from, he goes from what Job sees around him here, and he, he, just, he says, Job, take a look up. Now, just up, not up just a little ways. I'm talking about up and through. I'm talking about, well, and, and that's why I like, this is why I asked Zach this morning if he could put something like this, you know, as the background for the sermon series. Because, guys, when I think of space, it, I mean, some are like, man, wouldn't that be awesome to be able to go there? Not me. That's, like, terrifying. I don't know if it's because I was way too young when I watched Alien. I mean, nobody hears you scream in space. You know what I'm saying? I screamed. I screamed. I wasn't in space, but I screamed. And I watched the made-for-TV version. I was just a little spunker. I was a little big guy, all right? Sigourney Weaver screaming out there in the middle of nowhere in space. That was terrifying, okay? And he tells Job, you look up at that thing up there. You stare at that for a moment. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question about what you see, Job. Light and darkness. I mean, that's kind of where that comes from, that way up there. Job, was that, was that your idea to have light govern the day and darkness govern the night? Was that your idea? Did you do that, Job? Did you think that? This passage is, is full of sarcasm. I mean, basically in verse 21 there in chapter 38, he says, Job, since you're so old... Since you've been around so long, surely you can answer these questions for me. And God goes from, from what you see up above in light and darkness. He moves on to something a little bit closer. He moves to the weather. Okay, guys, we've come a long way. Surely, I mean, we're talking millenniums since the day of Job. Surely now we can make it rain, right? Right? And I'm not talking about a basketball court. 
Surely, surely when the snow gets a little too deep, we can make it stop, right? We can do that, can't we? We can stop the wind. God not only commands, he uses the weather as his instruments. Much like you would take a hammer to a nail or use a screwdriver, God commands the hail, the flood, the lightning, the snow. And he says to Job, have you seen, have you seen the warehouses of snow? Have you seen those, Job? He moves from there to beyond that to the stars. This is really, really interesting to me. When you look here, um, go a little bit deeper into chapter 38. And you read there in verse 31, and, and, and God brings up some names. He says, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? It's interesting, and it's not just coincidence, guys, that the two constellations mentioned here are gravitationally linked. And those are the ones that God brings up, and he says, do you tell them where to go? And where to remain. And he says, now let's reel it back in a little bit more, Job. Those clouds, that weather thing we're talking about, you know. Do you move those around? I've always wondered about clouds. I mean, we learned very, very young in, in science class that they're water vapor. Well, water is heavier than air. How does that work? And then as they do get heavier, we know what happens. They come farther and farther down, and before they get all the way down, they open up, and here come the rains. Man, Job, you were so smart when you thought all of that up. And then God moves from there. He moves from there at the, the end of chapter 38 on into chapter 39, and he talks about the wonders of the animal world. He brings up the lion. I'm telling you guys, the lion's always been the lion. I mean, the lion will be the lion until time's ended. He always just kind of reads up there as, as at the top. Everybody, when they talk about the majestic beast, it's the lion. I kind of like the grizzly bear myself, but oh well. I mean, it's the lion. He brings up the lion, and it's the fierce nature of the lion. He brings up the donkey. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. Because this is just no ordinary donkey or mule here that we're talking about. Now, if anyone who's ever messed with a donkey or a mule, they're an interesting creature. Isn't that right? We've got a few people who mess here with donkeys and mules. Um, stubborn creatures. Stubborn. And I'm not talking about figurative donkeys. I'm talking about real donkeys here. All right? And just think about taking one of these donkeys, though, and making it wild. And that's what he brings up. The wild donkeys. How, how they maintain and hold strongly on to their freedom. Good luck telling them what to do. And he goes from there to the ostrich. The ostrich. The ostrich is not the Einstein of the bird world. <laughs> okay? Poor things. It's been that way a long time. God makes it clear. But he goes on to say, but when they decide to run, they laugh at everything. He goes from there to the horse of war, the 
valiant war stallion. Has anybody, uh, have you watched the movie uh, Secretariat? Secretariat, man, that's, that's, that's top ten for me. I, I like that movie. Mike, I wasn't alive when Secretariat was in Sadie. I, I mean, it was close, but I wasn't, I wasn't quite... Wasn't quite there yet, but, but I love in that movie how at, at, at the point of the movie where you're just like, yes! I mean, I just I wanted to ruin it for you. But you hear the voice of one of the main characters. I won't tell you who quoting this passage from Joe about the, the horse of war and how they tremble before battle. Now, they don't, they don't tremble like a soldier because any wise soldier will be nervous, frightened before battle. It's part of what keeps them alive. But the war stallion trembles in excitement and smells the battle from afar and is ready for it. And I'll tell you guys, we've come a long ways in the weapons of war, I think, over the years. But I don't know a soldier in this world who, who would not be intimidated in the face of a war stallion yet today. And God says, I made that creature. I understand why he is the way he is. And the point that God is making here is this. Job, Job, you have nothing to do with any of this. You have no control over any of it. And yet you question me who governs all of it. It's kind of interesting how the, the body language and the actual language of Job uh, changes here a little bit. Why don't you fast forward a little bit to, to chapter 40, verse 5. This is in the middle of Job's answer. He talks about his insignificance, and then he says this, Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job's language, his attitude have changed somewhat since the last time we heard him. He's like, okay, Lord, I'm done talking. <laughs> you continue with what you have to say. So God has demonstrated through his creation his power. Can man contend with God? The answer is no. Now he follows that up with this. Can man charge God with injustice? A lot has changed in the millennium since Job walked in this world. One thing that hasn't is that question right there. People question God's justice all the time. Matter of fact, if you take a stand for God, if you take a stand for your faith in Jesus Christ, that's one of the main questions that will be directed in your way. How can a good God let the things that happen in this world happen? He must not be good. Can a man charge God with injustice? After Job speaks and says, I'm done speaking... Look what God says, back to chapter 40, beginning in verse 6. We'll just read a few of the verses here. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? God says to Job, you're going to call me unjust, Job. And then from the next five verses or so, we're going to see God give us an inside glance at his differing view of justice and timing. What might appear to us as God's governing exceptions to God's governing justice aren't really exceptions. What I mean by that is this. We have the same disadvantage that Job suffered from. A lack of adequate information and we are ruled by time. Have you ever wondered as you look at the world around you why wicked people do not suffer? Why they seem to prosper? Why again and again throughout the history of this world, good has been called evil and evil has been called good. Does it bother you? Brothers and sisters, we must not ever forget that in the end, everyone will face the judgment of God. We don't know the whole story. We don't have all the facts. And we don't know what the future holds. And God looks at Job and says, Job, how can you call me unjust when you don't see what I see? You don't know what I know, and you don't know what the future holds for you or anybody else in this world. You are in a very precarious position to be calling me unjust. And then God proceeds to back that up once again with his power. And this is where the passage takes a little bit of a turn. Because everything that we've seen to this point, though we may not understand it and there's still mysteries there, we can look around us and we can see a picture of what Job saw. But when we get to this part, I'm not sure we can see all. And I will tell you straight up, because, because where, where God is going to go now is he's going to go back to creation for an example, and he's going to bring up two examples in particular. And let me tell you guys, there has been a lot of speculation and debate as to what exactly God was talking about right here. And it all revolves around two creatures, one behemoth and one leviathan. Now, the first one is behemoth, and you can read about this creature, chapter 40, verses 15 through 24. I'm going to summarize it for you because an entire chapter is devoted to the next one. But this animal is fitted with size and strength to feed upon others, but it chooses not to. It eats grass instead. But still, man has no control over this creature. And everybody has called this everything from a hippopotamus to a 
to an elephant. I kind of think it's a brontosaurus. It's just kind of what I think. I've never seen an elephant carrying around a cedar tree for a tail. I just, just, just haven't, you know. They can carry a cedar tree with their trunk, but talking about their cedar. You see an elephant tail? It's not very impressive. It's not the most impressive part of that beast, okay? It does not look like a cedar tree to me. Okay. But then we move from the behemoth to the Leviathan. Here's where it gets really interesting. An entire chapter devoted to this creature. The lion had a phrase. Leviathan gets a chapter. <laughs> and it's not the only time you'll read about Leviathan in the Bible. But, but the other times it's brought up by the psalmist, also brought up by the prophet Isaiah. And it's more of a figurative type of sense. But, but here, it, we get some details. Man. And, and in the midst of this description, we see God, yes, God has a sarcastic nature to him. I, I, hope, I hope you understand that. And I know what some of you more sarcastic people in this room are thinking right now. <laughs> so God was a little sarcastic sometimes. Okay, that's not an excuse. You're not God. Okay. All right. Look at verses 3 through 5 of chapter 41. God, before he gets really descriptive about Leviathan, this is kind of how he sets the stage a little bit. He brought up this beast by name. And then he, what he says to Job, he says, he says, Will this Leviathan, will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak to you soft words? You're going to pick him up like a little puppy and snuggle him. Little Leviathan, just love all over him. You're going to do that. You're going to do that, Job. Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you tame this beast? Job, will anyone? Will you play with him as with a bird, or will you, or will you bind him for your maidens? In other words, we say, hey, honey, watch this. <laughs> I'm going to teach that thing a lesson. It's not going to happen, Job. If you look through verses 12 through 34 and read these descriptive words of this beast. Everything has been described from, from a crocodile to uh, uh, some sort of, of sea creature to a kimono dragon. Um, I, I, I think I've seen a kimono dragon, at least pictures of one. Um, uh, I think they might have Maybe the dragon part, right? I'm not sure about the kimono. I'm just, I'm just not sure. This, this is, I can tell you this, this beast is impressive. Laughs at the weapons of people. Breathes fire. And, and what God says about this beast, he says this, he says, this beast looks on everything that is High. He is king over all the sons of pride. It's not the lion. It's the Leviathan. The point of the example comes from verse 10. 
God says to Job. He says, no one is so fierce that he dares awaken Leviathan. You don't do it. You leave that, you leave that creature alone. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who made that creature? Who commands that creature? The question remains, can man contend with God in his mighty power? No. Chuck Messler, he, um, he had these words to say about about Job and about the conclusion of Job. He says, Job's last words are the ones, and, and they come from 42, verse 6, if you want to take a look at them. Job's last words are the ones he had resisted throughout the tense and tedious debate with his friends. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. This is not an omission that his suffering is deserved because of sin, but rather that his complaints against God stem from his ignorance of God. The answer to Job's questions lie not so much in a flood of new information as a new relationship with the Lord. The why of suffering is not nearly so important as the who God is. You see, Job knew a little something about ashes. I mean, he sat in ashes for weeks in the presence of his friends who were trying to give him good advice, trying but failing. And he sat in those ashes, ashes with pieces of broken pottery scraping the sores on his skin. But as he sat in those ashes, at no time was he repenting. He was boastfully saying to God, God, you show up. This is not right. I want to know. I want, I want to challenge you. And after God shows up, oh yeah, Job changes his tune. And he repents of his pride. Brothers and sisters, every time God shows up in Scripture, every time God shows up in life, the response of his people is the same. We are humbled. God didn't answer one of Job's questions. <laughs> he just showed up and showed Job who he was. And that was enough. In my own words, if God was made visible to us in, in such a way as he showed up to Job, I have a feeling we would forget our most passionate or bitter complaint immediately. You know, maybe it doesn't have any, even have anything to do with a complaint. Maybe it's more just a curiosity. And we say to ourselves, when I meet him one day, I'm going to ask him about this. I have a feeling when, when the sky is torn and Jesus comes through those clouds that we won't be, we won't be asking those questions. 
I don't even think we'll remember him. The questions will not matter because of who God is. God showed up and showed Job a glimpse of his mighty power. I can think of another time this took place. Took place in a very, very, once again, a small collection of people. And they're on, on, on the world side of this encounter. There were four involved. The names of three were Peter, James, and John. The name of the fourth on, on this side of the equation was a guy named Jesus. And they were on a mountain. Moses and Elijah showed up. We talked about it just a few weeks ago. And just for a moment, Jesus took some of his glory back. The glory that he left behind when he came into this world. And he didn't take the fullness of it. He just took a small part of it and he put it on. And he was transfigured before those three men. changed them. They were dumbfounded. Jesus told them, you can't tell anybody about this yet. You couldn't really handle it. They definitely can't handle it. So you keep this to yourself. You see, when Jesus returns the next time, He will not be leaving his glory behind. When Jesus showed up the first time, he showed us something besides the glory of God. What he put on display when he walked in this world before the cross was this. He put God's love on display. He put the compassion of God on display. And he changed the world. You know, it's interesting to me that if you read the remainder of of Job, what happens is this. God shows up. I've only covered, if you remember, God came for two reasons. He came to rebuke. That's done now. And he came to heal. And he healed Job's wounds. He healed his hurts. And what happens next is absolutely astounding. God shows up. He speaks to Job. He speaks words to him that bring healing. Not easy words to hear, but words that brought healing nonetheless. And then God directs his attention towards the three fellers that showed up to speak with Job. And this is what God says to them. Chapter 42, verse 8. God speaking. I'm jumping right in the middle of it. Speaking. Therefore, he says to them, Therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. 
for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job hath. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. So the encounter with God takes place. God rebukes. And guys, an encounter with God always has that element to it because we are worthy of being rebuked for all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if that rebuke is heeded, if it is understood and responded to, what comes next is amazing. It's healing. And then guess what happens after that? intercession. And what I mean by that, I mean what's on that board back there. Job has been rebuked by God. Job has been healed by God. God himself has healed him. And then Job stands in the gap between the lost and God the Father. It's amazing how history repeats itself. And I love the way in which the scripture talks about Job. It says, Job prayed for his friends. It says this, it says that God the Lord accepted Job. Now, this, was, this is old school here, folks. This wasn't written in Greek like the New Testament. This is written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew is a very, very um, demonstrative type of language. Very descriptive. Picturesque, if you will. And the picture painted by this wording in the Hebrew is this. God lifted the face of Job. You see, for wise people and even for unwise people, an encounter with God always results in the same view. The tops of our shoes or the dirt beneath our shoes. We always end up on our face before God. It happens every time. But God took the face of Job and he lifted it up. And he restored.